Across the old battlefields of the Western Front, perhaps thousands of memorials mark the great battles of the First World War. Many we know, many are frequently visited, but what can we learn from five little-known memorials of World War I? The first snow has fallen along the old front line, and it feels that winter is certainly here, and the year is coming to an end. It's that time when we look back over the last 12 months and review our year. And this week I reviewed the podcast year on Spotify, one of the many platforms that you listen to the podcast on. It's amazing just to see how many listens the podcast gets now. We're averaging well over a thousand downloads a day. And Spotify informed me that the Old Frontline Podcasts is in the top 5% of podcasts of all podcasts on Spotify, which is absolutely staggering. So I wanted once again to thank you all for listening to the podcast over the course of this year. The year isn't over. We've still got some episodes to go before Christmas. But at this moment, thank you for all of your downloads, for all of your listens, for all of your interactions on social media. And thank you as well to those of you who so kindly support us via Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon. We had another excellent Zoom supporters evening on Zoom the other day. And it's great to talk to you, to interact with you, to hear your questions and to speak about our collective passion for this subject. And to realise that I have with you all such an international audience from right across the world. The statistics show that there's at least 55 different countries where listeners to the podcast come from. And that in itself is just incredible. When I think going back to those early years of visiting the battlefield, so we often felt in isolation you could walk for weeks and never see another English-speaking person or anyone interested in the Great War. And here we are as a collective community, passionate about this subject, engaged by this subject, and determined, as I think all of us are, to make sure that this subject is never forgotten. So it's a great pleasure for me to not just make this podcast, produce this podcast, but to get to speak to the audience directly through social media and often in real life too. I've met quite a lot of you out on the old front line this year and that's something that I hope will happen again during the course of next year. The podcast started in that moment when we all stopped and paused during Covid and perhaps it was seen by many as just something temporary but here we are nearly three years later and the podcast continues and I have no plans to change that, far from it. As we move on into next year, there's lots of subjects that's coming up within the podcast for episodes that we're going to broadcast. I'm hoping to do some more recordings on the ground and hopefully supplement what we do through the audio side of the podcast with some video podcasts, video blogging, vlogging, whatever we're going to call it as well. So some new dimensions to the old front line as we move towards 2023. But thank you for this year. Thank you once more. I can't say it enough for listening to this podcast, supporting this podcast just by listening to it. And here's to the next year as the crisscross paths of the Great War 
take us along the old front line and give us time to pause and think. But for now, we head out, we pack our virtual boots, we pick up our virtual pack, and we head off to look at five little-known memorials on the Western Front. We're starting our journey just outside Paris, in many ways, in the battlefields of the Marne. The Marne River and the Marne Valley was an area of intensive fighting throughout the Great War, but in particular there was a defining moment here in September of 1914 with the First Battle of the Marne. And we're on a hilltop overlooking those battlefields at a place called Mondement. This is a hilltop on the Marne overlooking vast fields and areas of marshes close to the river itself. It's classic Marne battlefield. It's a, a massive battlefield, the area of the Marne, just from a 1914 perspective, where men from France and thousands of men from France's colonies, supported by British troops, fought the Germans. The Battle of the Marne in September 1914 saw something like two and a half million soldiers engaged across this ground. It was the biggest battle of 1914, and arguably one of the most decisive. It turned the course of the war. And at this stage of the conflict, the war in the West was about the German Schlieffen Plan. Count von Schlieffen had developed that plan before the war to launch a lightning strike against France to knock France out of the war by attacking through Belgium down into northern France and attacking across the borders of eastern France and advancing with both prongs of that attack on Paris. Here those German advances met with the French and the British almost at the very gates of Paris in this area of the valley of the Marne River and here the tide of the war turned. The Germans were defeated in the Battle of the Marne. The Schlieffen plan was thrown back. The German advance, the German steamroller, had stalled and unlike the Franco-Prussian War when Paris had been besieged and the French had eventually capitulated the events in 1914 were very different. And we're here at Mondemore because the first of the five memorials that we're going to look at is a massive memorial, a huge totem that rises high from this Marne hilltop and overlooks these crucial battlefields of the first year of the war. It was also a battlefield given treatment in what is probably the very first battlefield guide ever published. Incredibly, while the war was still on in 1917. The Michelin Tire Company published a whole series of battlefield guides, blue volumes in French and then tan volumes in English. When this Marne volume was published in 1917 with an English edition in 1919, probably then with the war still unravelling, it wasn't clear what purpose this book had. But battlefield guides, particularly those that were written and designed by the Michelin Tire Company, became some of the first ways that the battlefields of the Great War were interpreted. And when I thought about where to start this episode and which memorial to begin with, Mondemont was a good, clear choice. But the first book I chose to pick up to refresh myself as to how the events here unfolded in 1914 was that Michelin Guide. And when you look through it, and it's a book that's very easily to obtain, there's a reprint of it, but original volumes don't go for very much money on places like eBay. And those early Michelin guides are worth looking out for. And this one shows the ground around Mondemont 
And if we were standing there together today, really, it has hardly changed, except for the presence of this memorial. It was a small village dominated by a chateau. It perched on top of this ridge, looking down on the ground around it. And in 1914, as the Germans came into the Marne Valley, this was a secondary position with the fighting taking place in the plain below us. Now, we mentioned France's colonies. The Moroccan division was very heavily involved in the fighting here in 1914, and French tirailleurs of the Moroccan division were engaged in close combat with the enemy with the Germans in the plain below us. They would also feature in the story of the village itself. In the fighting down there, the Germans initially got the upper hand and the French were pushed back, and the crest here was then defended. The Germans swarmed up the slopes into the village and there was hand-to-hand fighting here, and the French were pushed back. And then a counter-attack came in. Those Moroccan troops, the Tyrolleurs, they advanced on one flank and the French 77th Regiment of Infantry on the other, and the Germans had captured the chateau, the central building, where the Jacob family had lived before the war. In the initial moments of the battle, shells had fallen on Mondement and had killed their horse in the stable and destroyed their car. They'd fled, and Monsieur Jacob, whose house it was, had fled only to die, perhaps of a broken heart, seeing the destruction that was wrought to his chateau in his village. But the Germans had gone in that chateau, and they'd loopholed it. And when you read the accounts of some of the fighting here, it sounds more like the Battle of Waterloo 99 years before. German troops loopholing the walls of the chateau, and French often advancing in column, as if commanded still by Napoleon, advancing towards heavy fire from the walls of their chateau over open ground. But the counter-attack succeeded, the Germans were pushed back, Mondement was retaken, and this was a decisive moment in the Battle of the Marne in September 1914, not just here, right along the line, the Germans were stopped and stalled and pushed back. The battle had turned. This was a French and British victory. The French never forgot that the British were there. The British were there only in very small numbers. The British Expeditionary Force, in less than half a dozen divisions with cavalry, had marched from Mons to the Marne during the famous retreat from Mons, and a handful of units from the BEF had taken part in the fighting here in September 1914. But it was considered an allied victory, a joint victory. The war was not won, far from over, but Germany's plans had been thwarted. And even before the conflict was over, in that same year that the Michelin Tire Company published the guide, in September 1917, on the third anniversary of the Battle of the Marne, senior French commanders, General Joff, who'd commanded here, General Pétain, the president, Poincaré, visited Mondement, overlooked that ground where the decisive moments of the victory in 1914 had taken place and decided that somehow it should be commemorated. In that post-war world, a plan was formulated to build a memorial here. And while that decision was made in 1920, the design of the memorial was put out to a competition nine years later in 1929, 25 different designs were shortlisted to just four, but no one could decide on what design the memorial should take. So the committee in charge stepped in and an award was made to Paul Bijot, who collaborated with Henri Bouchard with engravings done by several other artists who would 
engrave what we see on the memorial today and the shape and form and design of the memorial was made. A huge totem, like a totem pole, was the design that was chosen for this memorial, making that in itself a very unusual memorial. And it took until 1933 for the memorial to be finally finished. The stone is reddish in colour, almost pink, and it's taken from the Vosges at the very end of the old front line and brought up here specially to be carved to make this memorial. There are figures of the key commanders, General Joffre, of course, commanding the French forces, but also General French commanding the British Expeditionary Forces depicted on the memorial, along with French soldiers in period uniform of the battles of 1914. But it rises high and part of it is a carved figure, a winged figure of victory, because this was France's greatest victory in that early phase of the Great War. And with the column of the totem rising more than 20 metres, and the memorial having in the end cost more than 2 million francs, it was finally completed a year before the outbreak of the Second World War, and an unveiling date was selected for the 19th of September 1939. But of course, other events got in the way, and that unveiling ceremony never took place. The Germans didn't damage the memorial in 1940 or during the years of occupation, like many of these great war memorials and battle sites, during those years the Germans visited them. There are photographs of almost every memorial along the Western Front being visited by German soldiers. But the war meant that it took until September 1951 for the memorial eventually and finally to be unveiled, officially unveiled. And by then I suspect many survivors of the Battle of the Marne Many who'd lived through the war, lived through the occupation of the Second World War, perhaps had faded away, and there were more ghosts at Mondement during that ceremony than men who'd been there. Mondement is a, an impressive memorial. The way it towers above this landscape dominates this important ground from 1914, and the village feels like a bit of a time capsule. You can stand there on the village green, and imagine the French Tyrolleurs in their colourful uniforms advancing across the fields towards the chateau, and the French gunners dragging their artillery and firing at almost point-blank range into those loopholed walls which the Germans were defending. But up on top of the memorial is that winged figure of victory. And when you look at it, it looks like a figure in a storm blown by the high winds of fortune, often bad fortune in those years of 1418. It was a defining moment for France, not just the Battle of the Marne, but the whole Great War. It shaped a new generation in France. It shaped ideals and beliefs. And for many, it shaped the idea that the war was a warning. It must never happen again. France had lost 1.4 million dead in the war. It had been crippled by the war. Many felt it would never be the same again, and it lurched into the 20s and 30s with the fear that Germany might return one day, and a generation later, of course, they did. In many ways, the war on the Western Front was a French war, far more of a French war than a British and Commonwealth one, although that is, of course, what will dominate the collective understanding of most of you who listen to this podcast. 
but it's important to remember the French and understand them and understand the sacrifice that France made. And standing here at Mondement, looking down onto those vast open fields where two massive armies clashed more than a century ago and the tide of war was turned, it meant that for France, for Germany and for Britain and the wider world, the war on the Western Front would not be a war over by Christmas. It would be a war that would move from the static classic battles of Elan, of bravery, of charging walls, of bayonets fixed and men en masse, to a war of trenches and barbed wire and shell holes and gas and flamethrowers and tanks, an industrial war with killing on an industrial scale. And here at Mondement, it had just begun. We've moved across the Western Front now from the Marne to the Chemin des Dames. We've not quite left the French behind. I'll put a map on the podcast website, oldfrontline.co.uk, so you can see where these different memorials are located. And the purpose of this episode is to look at five little-known memorials, so we're going to move to another one of these now. We're in a little hamlet, which was once a village, La Faux, and there was a moulin here, a windmill. It sits on a high point on the western side of the Chemin de Dame. It's now on a fast road from Soissons. And when I first came here in the 1980s, very little had changed since the post-war period. It was a quieter road then. There were the memorials that we find here now, a small little cafe close by. And in a lot of the wooded areas close to where the memorials are, there were signs of trenches from the Great War. And in the fields, the detritus of war, water bottles and helmets and French bayonets, 75mm shrapnel fuses. And while the ground still gives up its secrets here, the intensity of what was the iron harvest in those days is nothing like it is today. But the war is ever-present. We've come to the Moulin de la Faux because this was a famous French battlefield of the Great War. There was intense fighting here throughout the conflict, but in particular in 1917, it was an attack area as part of the Chemin de Dame battle, and a place, not the first place, but one of the early uses of French tanks across this landscape towards the German positions as part of that operation. There's no tank memorial here, but what there is amongst all the small private memorials, and there are many of those to individuals and to units, what dominates the site is a massive, tall, carved French trench mortar bomb, a crapuillo. And the crapuillo, the unit that operated the trench mortars, the trench mortar artillery of the French army, was called the crapuillo, the toads, because these projectiles, when they were fired from the mortars, went off in an arc that looked like a toad leaping through the air. That's what was said. The crapuillo, the nickname for these trench mortar men, they were an important part of the French arsenal. The French army reacted very quickly to the changing conditions of trench warfare or of the war itself. We've seen in the Battle of the Marne how the vast classic French armies attacked the Germans in those open fields of 1914. And within a few months the war had gone static, there was stalemate and they were dug in in trenches. There were no bayonet charges here without incredibly heavy losses and the French 
improvised their weaponry or brought in new weaponry or adapted old weaponry and trench mortars became part of their battlefield arsenal. In many respects, when you look at how quickly the French adapted to those changes in the winter of 1914-15, they were way ahead of what the British were doing on their part of the front. So when we come into La Faux, come off the main road into the parking area, and there's still a little restaurant here where you can stop for a coffee and pause and think about the events that unfolded here during the Great War, we come across quite a mix of different things and periods here because this was an area that saw fighting again in the Second World War. The Krapuyo Memorial was unveiled in September 1933 and as German troops advanced down that main road towards Soissons in May 1940 during the Blitzkrieg, tank shells struck the memorial and it was badly damaged. Not destroyed, but damaged. And again, there are wartime photographs of German soldiers standing in front of this memorial on the many battlefield visits or battlefield tours that they made during the period of occupation after the armistice, after the French surrender in June of 1940. But on top of that, when you're near to where the memorial is, you'll find a massive bunker. And when you look at this bunker, it looks like a bunker from the Atlantic Wall because it is a copy of the type of bunkers that were used there. So this is not a First World War, a Great War bunker. It's a World War II construction. And this caused a lot of confusion to me the first time I visited because I'd been to Normandy with my father and I recognised this style of construction. What I didn't know then that I know now is that this was one of Hitler's headquarters or proposed headquarters that was built to shelter the Fuhrer when he was out on campaign or visiting his forces in a given area. And what we see here is part of the Wolfschlucht or the Wolf's Gorge, the W2, a whole system of defences and tunnels built around a deep cutting of the paris long railway line. There's a vast network of bunkers and concrete structures connected with this, many of which can be visited or certainly seen in the fields. And in terms of its history, Hitler only came here once about 10 days after D-Day when he met with his generals to discuss the Allied invasion of Normandy. But walking away from the bunker, which does have some memorials close to it, we come into an area where they've essentially brought together a lot of the smaller memorials. When I first came here, these were scattered over a much wider area and because of the changes in the road network here, the smaller monuments were brought into what is essentially a memorial park here now, dominated by the Krapuyo Memorial. It's a kind of strange memorial in some respects, this huge mortar bomb, and perhaps to some it looks a bit ugly, but when you go up close to it, it's got some amazing carvings of the trench mortar weapons on the side of it and the men manning them, and it commemorates over 12,000 men of the Krapuyo who were killed on the battlefield serving with these trench mortar artillery units of the French army. And sticking out as it does on a ridge line, it wasn't open only to tank fire in 1940. In 2007, it was hit by a lightning bolt that kind of chopped it in half. And when I came here one year, there were bits of it lying all over the place. Thankfully, the whole memorial has now been restored. And sitting here as it does in the heart of what was a battlefield that was a household name in the French newspapers of 1914-18, it's an obvious memorial that brings visitors in to understand the wider aspects of what happened here during the Great War. 
we had a whole episode about how World War One meets World War Two, or vice versa. But here at Lafoe, you certainly feel that. This was a battlefield where Napoleon's armies had marched a hundred years before the Great War, and in 1914, the classic kind of fighting that had taken place on the Marne also took place here. And then trench warfare leads to the development and the use of trench mortars, a changing nature of war, the way men fought that war changed, and the weapons that they used changed, and the memorial here expresses that. And then World War Two, the arrival of panzers, another occupying German army, and Hitler really brings into sharp focus how the crisscross paths of the Great War and the Second Great War meet on so many places along this old front line. And when I come here, I think of my old friend Yves Foucault, who was the French Commonwealth Wargraves Commission gardener from Pozières, who I've often spoken about in this podcast, who works in the cemeteries of the Somme for so many years. His father had been a Poilu in the Great War and had been a Crapouillo. He'd served in one of the trench mortar units and been awarded the Croix de Guerre for his bravery in the final fighting in 1918. He was very proud of his father's achievement. And when I read the citation for his Croix de Guerre, this was not just a weapon by that stage of the war that in its early stages it had been used as a duelling weapon to fire bombs across to the enemy and the enemy to send their Minenwerfer trench mortars or the Granatenwerfers back in the other direction. By 1918, it was part of the orchestra of weapons that the French army had, this modern army with tanks and trench mortars, huge amounts of artillery of all calibres, aircraft in the sky. It was a modern army fighting a modern battle. And the Crapuio, the trench mortars, the toads were very much at the heart of it and here at Lafoe are still remembered. We've moved further along the Western Front now to an area southeast of Verdun. We're in the Saint-Miel salience, where fighting involving French and German troops raged for much of the First World War, but in 1918, the Americans, the Doughboys, or the Sammies as the French called them, fought here in one of the decisive battles of the final phase of the war in September of 1918. We're in the village of Tiaucourt, close to where the Saint-Miel American Cemetery is located, and an area where men from the US 2nd Division fought during that battle. And we've come to see what is not an official memorial, not an American Battlefield Monuments Commission memorial, not even any kind of American-funded memorial. We've come to what is the village, the town war memorial for Thialcourt. On it, as well as the names of the local men and the civilians who died, are two bronze figures of an American doughboy shaking hands with a French poilu. It symbolises the joint victory of those allied nations in the battles of 1918 and was symbolic of what took place here in the Battle of the Saint-Miel salient in September 1918 when something like 110,000 French soldiers fought alongside the Americans. This was an important battle in the history of the AEF, the American Expeditionary Force. General Pershing, who commanded them, put his men into what was the first proper major offensive the Americans fought in the Great War. And so it became, for the United States, a defining moment in its 20th century history. 
where American soldiers fixed bayonets and went into battle and fought on European soil. And until the Battle of the Meuse-Argonne overshadowed it, this was the biggest and most important battle that America had fought since the Civil War. So for a local war memorial, really, this takes on much bigger significance. When we stand there, and I'll put photographs of the memorial on the podcast website, as I will with all of the memorials that we feature in this episode, we're looking at the two figures, the Doughboy on the left and the Poilu on the right. The Doughboy is wearing a greatcoat. He's got his rifle slung, a bandolier across his chest, a steel helmet, and he's shaking hands with Poilu, also in a steel helmet, an Adrian helmet, also wearing a greatcoat and holding his Labelle rifle. It's an amazing piece of bronze. The faces are incredible on this memorial. And it stands there overlooking the ground where those men of the US 2nd Division fought their way through Tiao Corps on the 12th, 13th of September 1918. They had nearly 1,500 casualties in the fighting here at that time. And while the first casualties of the American Expeditionary Force had died on attachment to British units in places like Combray, for example, in 1917. And other American soldiers had died in the fighting of perhaps lesser-known battles in the early part of 1918 in locations like Cantigny or Belleau Wood or Chateau Thierry. Here at Saint-Miel for the United States was a taste of what modern war could really cost. And it would signal a moment in which American soldiers, American forces of the AEF continue to fight, not just here at St. Miel, but in the subsequent battles right up to the very last moments of the Great War on the 11th of November 1918. The Battle of St. Miel was meant to have taken the Americans under the command of Pershing out of this pocket southeast of Verdun up towards Metz. That didn't happen. Pershing's men in many ways at this stage of the war were fighting the kind of battles and learning the kind of lessons that Britain and the Commonwealth and France had experienced in the earlier periods of the Great War. And aspects like the closer use of artillery and the need to have your supplies near at hand when the advance moved forward were lessons that were applied when that Meuse-Argonne offensive took place just a few weeks later. When you travel through this part of eastern France, it's easy to pass through villages and towns like Tiaucourt, but almost in every one is some aspect of the Great War, forgotten trenches, mine craters and memorials like these. And again, like La Faux, it's a place where the Great War meets the Second World War. On the church behind the memorial is the battle splash, the impact marks of artillery fire, from the fighting here in May 1940. There are photographs of German panzers coming through the streets of this town. It was a place where France and Germany clashed during that blitzkrieg period. But not just in 1940. Four years later, after the liberation of Paris, American troops advanced into this part of eastern France once more. The GIs had replaced the Doughboys, and General George S. Patton commanding the American armies in this part of France in the Lorraine campaign, found himself back on battlefields that he'd known a generation before, as did many of his subordinate commanders. GIs from many American divisions that had fought their way out from Normandy found themselves standing in front of memorials to their unit from a much earlier war, from America's first foray into European conflict. 
and what thoughts must have gone through their mind when they walked past cemeteries like St. Miel or saw these US monuments from the Great War, we can only but imagine. That generation of doughboys who'd fought here thought they were fighting a war for civilization, a war to end wars, as did many soldiers who had enlisted during that period. America had paid that price of 60,000 combat dead here in 1918 in the battles of the final phase of the Great War. And now in 1944, as Patton's tanks rumbled along these streets, a new price, a much heavier price, was paid. Theocor and these bronze statues is a place to reflect, like so many others along the Western Front. But here we remember America's sacrifice and the important contribution of those doughboys, of those American servicemen who came through these fields of the St. Miel salient in the final months of the Great War. We've moved north now to the Somme battlefields of 1916, and we're just outside the village of Lassar. We're moving up from the direction of Albert, Corselet behind us, towards Bapome at the far end of this Roman road, the Albert Bapome Road. And as we come into the outskirts of the village of Lassar, in the very first building on the right, there's a little minor road that goes off round the back of the barns there. And when we take that, it brings us to a forgotten Somme memorial. Not a British memorial, not an Empire memorial, not a French memorial or an American memorial, but incredibly, a German memorial to a German unit, the 111th Reserve Infantry Regiment, and a memorial that dates from the war itself. It's tucked away, not out of sight, but simply because this is where it was erected during the war. I came here on my last visit to the Somme in October, just kind of to check if it was still there. I always fear that one day I'll come back here and it will be gone. It's not in very good condition. It was damaged during the war, possibly damaged just after the war, and it remains tucked just behind these farm buildings in a little gated area that the farmer often uses for his cattle. It's still here really at the grace of this farmer. It's not a protected memorial in any way. So how did it come to be here and what and who does it commemorate? When we look at the memorial, it has an inscription that tells us that it commemorates the men of the 111th Reserve Infantry Regiment and their dead, Zion and Toten, and then it lists the battle honours that it commemorates of Fricor, Mametz, Montabas and La Boiselle. And most of this is not from the 1916 battle, from the earlier battles, we tend to think that the Somme only began on the 1st of July 1916, but the French were fighting the Germans here from the very beginning of the war. And this memorial that was carved from white sandstone made by an artist who served in the regiment was originally topped by a griffin and was part of a much wider site that was just not a memorial but a cemetery as well. So when we come round the corner and see the memorial on our left, there's a little lane that continues round the back of Lassar on the opposite side of the track out towards what is now pasture land. That's where the cemetery was located. All that remains now is the memorial. Ralph Whitehead wrote a series of books, The Other Side of the Wire, about this central part of the Somme battlefields and the German units that fought there 
from the very beginning of the conflict right up to the 1916 battles. And I'll put a link to those on the podcast website. But he tells a story in there of a veteran of this regiment, of the 111th Reserve Infantry Regiment, coming to visit this site in 1926. He'd spent so much time in the village of Lasars in the months before and the years before the Battle of the Somme. He knew that this is where the regimental memorial was located and the ornate decorative graves carved by members of the regiment to their fallen comrades. This is where their soldiers' cemetery, their Hildenfelt, their heroes' field, was located. And when he came here in 1926, he found the memorial in a very poor state. The griffin toppled and smashed at its base, and no sign of the graves of his comrades. He says in his account that it was as if they had never existed, and their sacrifice had been for nothing. And it's hard for us to imagine what German veterans must have made of these battlefields when they returned here in their interwar period. We mentioned when we were at Mondemont the Michelin battlefield guides and the volume for the 1916 Battle of the Somme has a photograph of this German memorial in it and I'll put a picture of that on the podcast website. So who were the 111th Reserve Infantry Regiment? A reserve infantry regiment was a part of the German regular army and being reservists, the original unit would have been made up of much older men. In the German army you went into the regular army, you did your period of service and when you came out you went on to the reserve and you stayed on the reserve until you went eventually into the equivalent of the territorial army. So these reservists would have all been in civilian occupations when the war broke out, given mobilisation orders and returned to their depot. It was a regiment based in Bavaria and so the men came from towns and villages in Bavaria and the regiment was posted to the 28th Reserve Division, part of the 14th Corps. And it had marched off to the conflict in 1914 to take part in the fighting in the Vosges in August of 1914. And then the following month it moved to the Somme, where it would remain until October 1916, when the regiment moved to Verdun. So it was here for well over two years, very much a Somme formation. During that period, as the battle honours on the memorial reflect, it held the line at Mametz and Montabar, at La Boiselle and Fricourt, and when out of the line, it was based in villages like Fleurs and here at La Sars. If we look at how the British army held the Somme front, and we can go backwards from it into the villages around Albert, the German army did a very similar thing going backwards through the villages from its frontline sector up towards Bapaume. So Lassars, until the Battle of the Somme, was part of the behind-the-lines history of the German soldiers on this part of the Somme front. One of the useful features of The Other Side of the Wire, those books by Ralph Whitehead, is that in the early volume he lists the casualty lists of the different units in that German Army Corps in the central part of the Somme, including the 111th Reserve Infantry Regiment, and from those we can get a sense of where they fought. The earliest battles at the end of September 1914 were at Fricourt. They then take over the Mamet sector in October 1914. Early 1915 they move to Fricourt and then they take part in the fighting at Serre in June of 1915 in the Battle of serre Hebuturn. And by late 1915 they're holding the front line around Overless in what became known as Mash Valley and Sausage Valley. 
in this period they were fighting the enemy which at that stage of the war for them were the French and building up the defences on this part of the Somme front. And then in early 1916 they took over the Free Corps sector in an area just west of the village where there was a lot of mining activity where the Germans had tunnelled underneath the French and the French had done likewise and in that early part of the year in the lead up to the Battle of the Somme British troops were now arriving in this sector and for the first time they faced Der Tommies, they faced British soldiers and that mining war there continued in a position that the British knew as the Tambor. So this was a regiment that had quite considerable combat experience going right back to the very first engagements on the Somme but more importantly for the story of the 1916 battle it had been one of those German regiments heavily involved in the building up of the defences here on the Somme front, the trench systems, the machine gun positions, the mine warfare that had gone on, the belts of barbed wire, the defence in depth, the dugouts. This was the German army staking its claim on the Somme. This is where they were digging their hills in and not taking one step backwards. This is where the British, the British they were now facing, would eventually have to fight them. And this was a unit that had prepared those defences ready for that forthcoming storm. When we look at those casualty lists that Ralph Whitehead puts in his books, and he makes this point himself, not one of those men have a known grave. So when we stand here at this now dilapidated and sadly crumbling German memorial from the Great War, and we think that there was once a cemetery here, there's not even a record, as far as I can find, of exactly how many graves there were here, what of these graves? If these men have no known grave, are some of them still buried here? That is possible. There is some records that indicates that some of the burials that were here were removed to the German cemetery at Villas Floss. Whether all were recovered is impossible to say. A cemetery like this existed in almost every village behind the German line on the Somme, just in the same way that British cemeteries were established in the villages behind the line on their part of the Somme front. It was no different for the Germans. They had to have places to bury their dead, their Heldenfelts, their heroes filled to honour their fallen. And there were cemeteries here at Lassars and not far away in Martinpuy, another one at Corselet, a very big one at Miramont, and the story goes on. But today, when we visit the Somme and think of German cemeteries, we think only of Freecorps because that's the last one in the May 1916 area where the British fort left standing. But there are others. I saw a post recently on social media saying that Free Corps was the only German cemetery on the Somme. Well, if you have a look on the German Volksbund website, you will see that is very far from the truth. And there are cemeteries, for example, just north of Bapome, in places like Sapignes and Asiette, where there are the dead from 1916 buried in what was their casualty clearing station cemeteries behind their line. But here at Lassars, what we have is a rare German monument, not a unique one. Again, you might ask yourself, is this the only German memorial left on the Western Front? Well, that is far from the case, particularly once you move into the sector where the Germans were fighting the French. But even here on the Somme, there are some other examples. There were more, many destroyed in the fighting in 1916, others deliberately removed in the post-war world. 
how would the French have felt to come back to their village to begin the reconstruction in the 1920s? Would they have wanted German memorials surrounding them? No. It's clear and to a degree understandable that such things were removed. And the way that Germany's dead was treated after the war was not the best example of what to do with an enemy's fallen. So it's quite likely that in many parts of the Somme, not just field graves of German soldiers remain, as they do of British soldiers, and many of those of both sides have been recovered in recent years, but there may well be plots, perhaps large plots, of German dead remaining in fields in villages like this behind the German line, the old German line on the Somme, where they've been buried by their comrades more than a century ago. Will they ever be recovered? Will they ever be reburied in German cemeteries? This is a question that I can't answer. Things perhaps are changing in Germany, but will there ever be a time in which Germany will return to recover its dead from places like this, if there are any to recover? I don't know. But certainly it's important for us to understand that and come to places like the Saars to see a glimpse into what there once was here and reflect too that the Somme as we know it today is a battlefield dominated by the cemeteries and the war memorials of the victors. To find the enemy, we must creep behind old farm buildings in quiet lanes into the forgotten corners of the Somme battlefield. We're continuing our journey north and we've come up into Flanders now, not to the ground around Ypres, but right up to the Belgian coast near to the town of Newport and we've come to see the Newport Memorial. This is a British and Commonwealth memorial commemorating men who fell on this part of the front who have no known grave. The Menningate Memorial and Tynecart and Plugstert are not the only memorials to the missing in Belgium, and this is perhaps one of the lesser-known memorials to men who died on this part of the Flanders Front and have no known grave. It's located on the edge of the town of Newport, near to the King Albert Memorial, the King of the Belgians, this huge round structure with a statue of the King on top. He commanded the Belgian forces here in the Battle of the Issa, when they open the floodgates of the canals, and also here is the Goose's Claw, this intersection of canals on this part of the Flanders landscape, and opening up those sluice gates flooded the plain here and stopped the Germans from doing a right wheel and sweeping down the Flanders coast, outflanking the Allied forces in Flanders. It was a, another really decisive moment in the Great War, but here, somewhat overshadowed by the other memorials on the main road that leads up towards Ostend and beyond that, Zeebrugge, the site of the famous raid in 1918, is this memorial column flanked by lions, the Newport Memorial. Where we are is at what is effectively the top end of the Western Front. From the memorial, you can see the edge of the Flanders coast, the place where the trenches ended in the sand, and veterans who were here remembered seeing barbed wire on the beach partly submerged in the seawater and moonlight glinting off the wire as it sat there on a beach that had once been a place for families to have fun. 
By then, it was a battlefield and a place of death. And French and Belgian troops fought here in 1914 and a line was established along the Issa Canal, which stabilised over the course of the next few years with very little movement indeed. British troops didn't arrive in any great numbers on this sector until 1917, when a group of British units were brought up here to train for an amphibious operation along the Belgian coast to land and overrun the submarine pens around Ostend and Zeebrugge. Operation Hush was its nickname. But although they developed special tracks for the tanks to take them across the sand and barges to bring the troops in, there was no dominating air power, there were no landing craft, there were no funnies. This wasn't D-Day and the German gun batteries along this coast may have caused horrific casualties if those landings had ever taken place. Instead, the units that had trained for it held the line here for a while and in July 1917 the Germans attacked and overran the British positions, forcing the line back, one of the very few bits of movement in this part of the Western Front here in the northern tip of Flanders. And although British naval forces continued to operate on this part of the coastline and the Royal Naval Air Service and the Royal Flying Corps and eventually the Royal Air Force flew over this area in the final stage of the war and Royal Marine Artillery gave fire support to this part of the front, the British involvement in terms of the wider army ended with the removal of troops in 1917 who went off to fight at Passchendaele or Cambrai. So given the really short period of British involvement here, the Newport Memorial is one of the smallest memorials to the missing from the Great War. It was designed by Bryce Binney, who'd served in the Great War with the Black Watch and been decorated for bravery. The lions that flank it were carved by Charles Sergeant Jagger, one of the more incredible artists of that period. And the memorial records the names of those who died on operations along this part of the Belgian coast and in this top end of the Western Front from 1914 to 1917. So this is not just that 1917 period. It also commemorates men who died in the fighting around Antwerp when British troops were sent up there in October of 1914. It's made of Uville stone, which is from the Lorraine region of France, and it stands 24 feet high, and the name panels, the memorial panels, are cast in bronze, which is very unusual for a memorial to the missing from the Great War. We're used to names carved in stone, as the saying goes. And another interesting feature is that the cap badges of the regiments and units that are commemorated on the memorial are also carved into those bronze panels, similar to what we see in stone, in Portland stone, with the La Toure Memorial in northern France. The panels record the names of 566 officers and men. 23 of these are from the Royal Naval Division, who died at Antwerp in October 1914. The Royal Naval Division, that unique formation of the Great War, Britain's sea soldiers, had been formed on an idea of Winston Churchill, and its units named after famous admirals Nelson, Benbow, Hood, Collingwood, backed up with men from the Royal Marine Light Infantry, had landed on the Belgian coast in October 1914 and assisted the Belgian army in the fight for the forts around Antwerp. Its casualties were very light, but its pride was dented. It showed that the formation of a naval division 
employed upon the land had problems when men who had spent a career at sea didn't really know how to fight land battles and most of the casualties suffered by the Royal Naval Division were men who ended up accidentally in the Netherlands and were taken prisoner and spent the rest of the war in Groningen. As a consequence of these experiences that the Royal Naval Division had at Antwerp, it went back to Britain, reformed at Blandford Camp in Dorset, and then was sent off to Gallipoli where it took part in the fighting there. But some of its earliest casualties are remembered on the bronze panels of the Newport Memorial. Of those 566 names, when we look at the British Army units that are commemorated here, and we examine the register, we discover that 291 of them are men who fell between the 10th and the 12th of July 1917, which is that battle when the Germans attacked in the area around Newport itself and pushed the British back from one side of the Isar Canal to the other. And again, when we look at the names of those 291 men who fell during that period of the war, we find the two units principally associated with this battle. The 1st Battalion, the Northamptonshire Regiment, who have 84 men commemorated here, and the 2nd Battalion, the King's Royal Rifle Corps, who have 63. These two units were in the very forward positions that were hit by the German advance and completely overrun. Behind them was the Isar Canal, which there were footbridges to get across to the forward zone of the battlefield. The Germans destroyed them with artillery fire, and it meant that not so much with the men that were killed, but when the position was overrun, many soldiers were taken prisoner because they couldn't swim, and so they couldn't swim across the canal and get away. And the only ones who did get away were the ones who could swim. So the whole operation here in July 1917 was a bit of a disaster for the British and a change in geography in this what was otherwise quiet part of the line. Looking at some of the stories of the men commemorated on the memorial, we find the name of Lieutenant Colonel Richard Neville Abadie, DSO. He was the commanding officer of the 2nd Battalion, the King's Royal Rifle Corps, and he died in the opening moments of the battle on the 10th of July 1917. Born in 1881, he was the son of a Major General and educated at Charterhouse. He was commissioned in the King's Royal Rifle Corps in 1900 and he fought in the Boer War and by the opening of the Great War was a Brigade Major in the 137th Brigade of the 46th North Midland Division, a territorial brigade, and he fought with them at Luz and at Gomacor on the first day of the Somme. By August 1916, he was the commanding officer of the 2nd Battalion King's Royal Rifle Corps and he would remain their CO until he was killed here at Newport. In that battle, his battalion lost 17 out of 20 officers and 481 out of 520 men. He was pretty much annihilated in that German attack. Richard Abadie was one of four brothers who died on service with the British military. Two of those, including him, of course, who died in the Great War. And there is a memorial to those four brothers in Canterbury Cathedral. Among the naval names that are on the Newport Memorial are not just men from the Royal Naval Division. And when we look at cemeteries and memorials for the Great War, we often look at the ages. We look for youngest soldiers and we look for older soldiers. And the much debated subject of who is the oldest British soldiers to die in the Great War is something that is often discussed. There are two candidates for it, Henry Weber on the Somme and Jasper Myers Richardson at Etarpla, 167, 168. And they are both considered to be the oldest British soldiers to die 
either in enemy action or as a result of enemy action on the Western Front during the Great War. They were the oldest soldiers, but who was the oldest sailor? And there is certainly a candidate for that here on the Newport Memorial. Lieutenant Commander Henry Thomas Gartside Tipping served with the Royal Navy HM Yacht Sander and was killed on the 25th of September 1915, aged 67. His ship, which was a paddle steamer, was sunk by German gun batteries along the Belgian coast when it was part of that vital naval flank that operated along the English Channel, this Channel Coast sector of Flanders, throughout, really, the Great War, another forgotten aspect of this part of the Western Front. So at 67, Gartside Tipping must have been one of the oldest sailors to have died in the Great War. His wife, sadly, also died in the conflict. His wife, Mary, was shot by a French soldier near Soissons while serving with the Women's Emergency Corps at a canteen on the 4th of March 1917, and she's buried in a military cemetery near to Soissons. And that, too, makes their story somewhat unique, one of the very few examples of a husband and wife both dying in the Great War. When I come to this memorial, I find myself looking, of course, at the names on the bronze panels, but also spending some time looking at Charles Sergeant Jagger's lions. I find them captivating in a strange kind of way. Each of them seems to have a different expression, and they stand there guarding the memorial. In the 1920s, on the other side of the road, there was once a trench museum here, and there are many picture postcards of the trenches and the observation posts and the barbed wire and the machine gun positions that visitors during that period could walk through and get some sense of what the line here had once looked like, as much as they ever could, of course. That's long since gone. But this memorial, while infrequently visited, perhaps many who come to Flanders don't even know that there is a British memorial to the missing here at Newport. It's an important one. It stands there at that northern point on the Western Front. It's a British beacon to the Great War. It stands as a kind of sentinel, really, at the northern tip of the British forces. This is where those trenches which snaked for 450 miles across Belgium and France melted away into the sea. And here at Newport, the column and the lions that surround it, that guard it, stand fast for all eternity. And not just marking, but honouring that northernmost point of the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.